you would take a Bible, please, and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians 5, we're going to look at verses 14 to 21. It's on page 966 in your pew Bible. You'll notice the title of the sermon today is The Gospel as Reconciliation. There's different ways we can talk about our salvation or the gospel. We can talk about it, and I'll mention them in, in just a moment, but one of the ways is we are reconciled. We had a broken relationship with God. We were in enmity with him in our sin. So we needed someone to come and reconcile that back together again. We needed someone to fix the problem because of our sin. Christ has done that for us. And so that's what I want us to, to zero in on in this great passage that's probably familiar to you uh, this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. O Lord, we pray that you would teach us now from your word. Father, we thank you for loving us. As we read from Ephesians 1, you loved us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Lord, we would discover ourselves in Christ. We would find great hope and assurance from that. And now, being reconciled to you, we would hope for and pray for and plead for the reconciliation of others. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. There was once a couple that had been married for 60 years. And throughout their life, they had shared everything. They loved one another deeply. They had not kept any secrets from one another, except for one thing. The wife kept a shoebox in the top of her closet, and when they got married, she made her husband swear that she would never look in the shoebox and never even ask about its contents, and so he agreed. For 60 years, he never looked in the shoebox until one day his wife grew gravely ill. He was trying to put her affairs in order. The doctor had told him that she would not recover from her illness, and so remembering the shoebox that he had quite frankly forgotten for the majority of the time, he takes it down out of the closet, he takes it to the hospital, and sets it before his wife and says, Honey, can we now open the shoebox? I'm dying to know what's in there. And he said, she said, Sure. He opens the shoebox. There's two little crocheted dolls and $95,000 worth of cash. He's intrigued, of course. Anyone would be intrigued. What's up with this? Well... The day before we got married, the wife was telling the husband, my grandmother sat me down and said, you're going to get in a lot of arguments in the course of your marriage. Make sure you work to reconcile your differences. If you cannot reconcile your difference, 
don't walk away, just crochet a doll. So she said, okay. So the husband's overwhelmed. There's only two crocheted dolls in here. Apparently, we've had a great marriage and never come to the point where we needed to reconcile. So I get the dolls, but what about the $95,000 of cash? Well, his wife looked at him and said, well, every time I crocheted a doll, I would sell it to a local craft store for $5. (laughs) That's 19,000 dolls for you mouth nerds out there. This morning, we're going to talk about the gospel just in terms of reconciliation, just in terms of a broken relationship that needs to be fixed. Paul uses different illustrations and metaphors for salvation and our need for it. Sometimes he employs the use of the language of justification. Legally, we need to be made right again with God. We have a sin problem, and we need to be justified. Christ says, I will take your penalty, I will save you and give you my righteousness. So sometimes it's legal language that he uses. Other times, Paul uses the language of the temple or of atonement and sacrifice. You're unclean, so you come to the temple with a sacrifice. The bull or the goat or the lamb is slaughtered, and at least for a moment, God's wrath is appeased or taken away from you. Now, ultimately, Christ is our atonement. He's the last once-for-all sacrifice that was paid for us. Our blood was supposed to be spilled and shed. Instead, he does it for us. So sometimes Paul uses the language of sacrifice. Other times, he uses the language of redemption. We have this huge, enormous debt that needs to be paid, and we can't pay it. In fact, we can't lessen it in any way. So we need someone to redeem us. We need someone to purchase us back. And Jesus Christ does that with his life and his death. Other times, Paul uses, as he does in this passage, the language of reconciliation. We are alienated from God. There is enmity. There's lack of communication. There's lack of worship. And we need someone to come in and fix that and to bring the two sides back together again. And Jesus does that. Because the fundamental problem here as we see it is alienation from God. And that's what Paul is addressing. So what is the gospel? You know, in the Presbyterian Church, we love to talk about our theology. It's good for us to talk about our theology. We love the classroom and we love learning. We love to use big words like superlapsarianism and perspicuity and hypostatic union and hermeneutics. These are good words, very good theological words, and it's worth our time and effort to explore what they mean. But what if, just for a Sunday, we distilled all this big stuff down to what's most important? It's not the only thing that's important, but what's the most important thing we need to know and believe as Christians? We could say more, but we certainly couldn't say any less. What's at the bottom of this all? It's salvation. It's the information that's the most important for us. That God reconciles us to himself through the work of his son, Jesus Christ, and continually applies that to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. It's a Trinitarian salvation that we have. And that will be reflected in the outline. The ministry of reconciliation. The Father activates reconciliation. The Son achieves reconciliation. The Holy Spirit applies reconciliation. So first, the Father activates this reconciliation. The gospel, simply put, makes us right with God through our trust in in the Son. The gospel solves the problem of why we are alienated. Our sin and our lack of righteousness. Our most fundamental problem in this world is not the environment, although that's important and we ought to care for that. 
Our most fundamental problem is not our unhappiness. It's not poverty. It's not social reform. Those things are important. But it's not our most important problem. The most important problem for us as individuals, for, for our world, is sinfulness and how it affects everything. Our problem is that we're unclean. Our problem is that we're guilty. Our problem is that we're so far in debt and we can do nothing about it. Our problem is that we are at enmity with, our God, with God our Father and we can do nothing to repair the relationship. It's so irreparable. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. As I told the communicants class this past, uh, past couple of months, what can dead people do? Well, dead people can do nothing. And we can do nothing to solve the problem that we have. In fact, we might even take it a step further to say our pro- major problem is sin, but in a sense our major problem is also God. He's perfect and holy and just. He can't just turn the other cheek. He can't just turn the other way and say, I'm not going to look at that sin. No, the sin has got to be dealt with. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None are righteous, no, not one. Sin is the problem. Our lack of perfect righteousness is the problem. In writing that God reconciled us to himself, Paul is teaching us that God is the aggrieved party, and we, mankind, are the the cause of the alienation. But yet it's God, the aggrieved party, who takes the step to initiate the reconciliation. He is the one that fixes things, the wronged person. That's never how it works in, in real life with, with human beings. Typically, it's the one who wronged goes to the person who has been wronged and says, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Or usually what typically happens is we have to invite a third party in. Okay, this side and this side, let's come together and let's, get reconcil- let's reconcile our differences here. But in Christ, God, the one who we have wronged, comes to us and says, let me reconcile this through my son Jesus Christ. Paul says that, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. God's infinite love fixes, initiates, or activates this reconciliation. So what was God the Father doing through Christ on the cross? We don't often focus on what the Father was doing, we focus on the Son. But Paul is drawing our attention to the Father's mercy. I think we usually think on the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus is the gracious, nice, kind one, and there's God the Father, this angry, hateful, implacable God, who, (laughs) he's the bad guy and Jesus is the good guy, but that's not the picture that Paul is painting for us here at all. It's because of the Father's love that Christ is on the cross. Because he loves you and me, he sent his son to die. Yes, it's to satisfy justice. Yes, it's to to quench all the wrath that was being poured out. That's all true. But it's because the Father loved us. He loved us very much. As one commentator said, his justice is displayed as the instrument of his love. His justice is carried out because he loves us. And Jesus on the cross is on the cross because of the Father's prior love before the foundation of the world. Paul emphasizes this in, chapter, in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The death of Christ evidences God's love for you and me. John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. The cross is the ultimate sign of God's love for you and me. He is activating this, reform- this, uh, this reconciliation. 
Why is this so important? Well, you may fear that going to God with all of your sin, he's just going to give you what you deserve. He's not. If you come to God in faith and repentance, ready to surrender yourself to him, he will not give you what you deserve. He will give his son what you deserve, and he will pay for that. So how does the Father accomplish this reconciliation that his love purposed? Well, he accomplishes it through Jesus, not counting trespasses against them, as it says in verse 19. But does he just sweep this away or look the other way? Absolutely not. He visits the judgment meant for us upon his Son. So number two, the Son achieves reconciliation. Verse 21, the Father loves us so dearly that he poured out his wrath on Jesus and not us. And the gospel centers on the life, but especially the death of Christ. But not just the fact that Jesus died. People die all the time, and it's not good news for our salvation and for us spiritually. It says that Jesus knew no sin. Well, this, of course, could never be said of you and me. We we know sin very well. Jesus never sinned. He, He never thought anything that was wrong. He never said anything that was sinful. He never did anything that was sinful. But God counted him nonetheless a sinner. Sin bearer, all of the sin of God's people was put on him, and he dealt with it. Despite the fact that he was sinless and knew no sin, he became that sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. You know, we can talk about who killed Jesus. Acts chapter 2 is very clear that the Jews did. We can talk about us as God's people. He had to deal with our sin, so our sin led unto his death. But really, it was the Father that killed the Son. Because God made him sin. Galatians 3 says God made him into a curse for us. But through that curse, we are reconciled. This is great. God doesn't count our trespasses against us. This is fantastic. But it's more than just not counting our trespasses against us. The gospel is not simply that God doesn't count our sin to us. He doesn't count it to us because he counts it to Christ. Your sin does get paid for, you know, just not by you. It gets paid for by Jesus. Our sins are not counted to us because the sin bearer took them on himself, and that's why we're reconciled. It's the idea of substitution that comes into clear focus here, I think. If you've ever played sports, well, most sports anyway, you know the, the idea of substitution. You never wanted to be on the basketball floor, hear the horn go off, and somebody say your name. Because why? Well, that means you're coming out. Andy, got you. You're out. Substitute. You don't want to hear that. It's bad in sports because you want to stay in the game. It's great in our theology. We need a substitute. It's the beauty behind the story in Genesis chapter 22 with Abraham and Isaac. Abraham says to his servants, I and the boy will go up the mountain, we will worship, and we will come back. And they do that. And the excruciating question from Isaac, as he walks up the mountain with his father Abraham, he says, Father, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the sacrifice? Abraham, knowing full well that Isaac was meant to be the sacrifice, he says, the Lord will provide the lamb for the sacrifice. And they get to the top where where the altar is, and Abraham lays his son Isaac down on the altar. He raises the knife to slaughter his son, and the angel of the Lord says, No, Abraham! Now that I know that you are faithful and you believe in my promises, 
You see that ram over in the thicket? Go get the ram, take your son off the altar, put the ram there, and slaughter the ram. It's substitutionary atonement is the theological term that we use. It's exactly what Christ was saying. You are the one that was supposed to ascend Mount Calvary into the cross. You are the one that was supposed to be slaughtered because of your sin. And Jesus says, no, you're out and I'm in. I'm substituting for you. This is the beauty of the gospel, friends. It was you that was supposed to be there. Jesus says, no, I will take it for you. I will bear the sins of my people because the Father loves them, and so do I. In verse 9, we're told that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Despite what you may believe this morning, every single one of us will appear before the judgment seat of Christ one day. All of us. Whether you believe that or not, the scriptures, God's word says that you will. You will appear before his judgment seat, and you have two choices. You can go there clothed in your own righteousness, which the Bible says are filthy rags, or you can go before him clothed in the righteousness of Christ, which says it's perfection and cleanliness. And if you do, you will hear, well done. Not guilty. You are forgiven and saved. In verse 21 we are told that Jesus is the sin-bearer for us. But what does that do to Jesus? We know he pays for our sin, but he becomes sin. What does that do to his deity? What does that do to his perfection? Well, Ligon Duncan, in commenting on this passage, I think says something very helpful for us. He mentions Numbers chapter 5, verse 2. Anyone with leprosy, anyone with a discharge of blood, anyone that comes in contact with a dead body. If you were to touch a leper, someone who had a discharge of blood, a dead body, if you touched them, you were unclean and you had to be cast out of the camp. Luke is considering, I think, these, the, this Numbers chapter 5 when he addresses several stories in Luke chapter 5 and Luke chapter 8. The first is this. A leper comes up to Jesus. He wants to be healed, and Jesus stretches out his hand to touch the leper to cleanse him. Now, any good Hebrew would have done what? No, Jesus, don't do that. You're going to become unclean. You're going to be cast out if you touch that leper. Jesus does it anyway. Nothing happens to Jesus. He cleanses the man. In Luke chapter 8, we read of the great story, the woman who has this discharge of blood for the last 12 years. She wants to be healed. She believes that she can just touch the hem of Jesus' garment. She will be healed. And so she walks up to Jesus, unbeknownst to him, reaches out her hand to touch his garment, and any good Hebrew would have said what? No, Jesus, don't let her touch you. You will become unclean. But she touches him anyway. Nothing happens to Jesus, but she is cleansed. Before that story, a man has come up to Jesus. His daughter is very sick, and he thinks that Jesus can heal her and asked, pleads with Jesus to come to his house to heal her. The issue with the woman happens, so and so in this amount of time, she has since died. So Jesus goes to this, to this man's house. His daughter has passed away. He sits on the bed next to her, and he's about to touch her. And any good Hebrew would have said what? Jesus, don't do that. You will become unclean. But instead, he looks at the, tenderly at this little girl and says, little girl, get up. And she does. She's brought from death into life. Nothing happens to him, but life is given to the child. I think you see the point. When our sin is poured upon Jesus Christ, nothing happens to him. 
Everything happens for us. You think that there is sinfulness in your life that God simply cannot forgive because how heinous and bad it is. No, when you come to him and put your faith in him, something's going to happen to you. He's going to cleanse you. He's going to save you. He's going to call you from death into life. You're not going to sully him in any way. You're going to be made righteous. This is what is happening in Jesus' sin-bearing for us. He gives you what he deserves, and he takes upon himself what you deserve. We now have a responsibility to be ambassadors for Christ, to announce to the whole world the very reconciliation that we have experienced through Christ. So lastly, the Holy Spirit applies reconciliation. Twice in verses 15 and 16, Paul has used the words, no longer. Now that we have come to faith in Christ, there are certain things that are no longer true or ought to no longer be true of us. Such a person no longer lives for self, he says in verse 15. Such a person no longer regards Christ or anyone else for that matter from a worldly point of view, verse 16. Why? We're a new creation. Behold, we are a new creation. The old has gone. Behold, the new has come. Something is different about us. Is something different about you? You believe differently. You hope differently. And yes, you do live differently. Why? Well, back in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. This was not the case, but now it is, because you're new. We're new creations because the Father activated reconciliation, the Son achieved it, and now the Holy Spirit applies it continually over and over again in our life. Paul understood this. Before his conversion on the Damascus Road, he, wanted, he knew who Jesus was. He knew what Christians believed, but he hated them. Now he has a new perspective. He didn't regard them anymore from a worldly perspective, now from a heavenly, Christ-like, spiritual perspective. Because we are new creations. This separation and alienation from God clouded our understanding of everything, but now we can see clearly. Reconciliation in the main is a vertical thing. We are reconciled to God the Father. But it also is now given us, as Paul says, the ministry of reconciliation so that we would reconcile horizontally with the people that we know, with, with those that we love, and we would yearn that they would also know the, the vertical reconciliation back to God the Father. You see, our old self is gone. Volume one, if you will, has closed. Your life before Jesus Christ, there was a death. That old man is out of here. Yes, there are vestiges that continue to frustrate you and you see in your own life, but volume two has opened with a resurrection, a spiritual birth, if you will, where you see things altogether different because you're new. Great theologian Augustine had lived a very immoral life prior to his conversion. He was converted this reading the book of Romans. This great change takes place in his life. And one day, he's walking through town, and one of his old girlfriends spot him. She runs up to him, Augustine, 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 it is I. And he turns and he looks at her, and he says, but it is not I. I'm not the man you think I am. I'm not the person that you knew years ago. I am completely different. <laughs> Praise be to God that he is. And praise be to God that we are. We are a new creation. We have new responsibilities. We have new abilities. 
and we've been given this ministry of reconciliation. Everything looks different. We used to consider people in our life, everything is how it revolved around us. How are you affecting me? How is this impacting my life? How, how is everything, I'm the center of the universe? Not anymore. We now see God as the center, and how am I revolving around him? How is everyone else revolving around him? How close am I, and how close are they, or how far away? We have been reconciled. We now want others to be reconciled. That is why we've been given this ministry of reconciliation, because we have been so loved by our God. You probably know the story. We're going to sing in just a moment. The, 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 my favorite hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. You probably know the story. Uh, over the last 140 years since this event happened, this is probably the most well-used illustration of any illustration that there's ever been. Horatio Spafford and his wife Anna had a very difficult 1871. They lost their son to scarlet fever, and he lost the majority of his business interests in the Chicago fire of 1871. So they decided in 1873 that they were going to take a huge vacation to England. Spafford sent his wife Anna and their four daughters on ahead of him on a ship. He would stay in Chicago to try to tie up some loose ends and join them in a few days. As the boat sailed across the Atlantic, it collided into another boat. 246 people drowned and died, including Anna and Horatio's four daughters. They died. She gets over to England and sends a telegram back to her husband with two words, saved alone. He hops on a ship to go be with his wife, and as he passes over the place that now serves as the graveside of his four daughters, he begins to write the song that you know well. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. You know, we typically sing that song when the sermon's about the sovereignty of God or when we're suffering, when we're hurting, and it's absolutely right to sing it at, those, at that time. We sing that song a lot at funerals because it, it provides comfort for us. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrow like sea billows roll, we know what that feels like. <laughs> but don't miss verse 3 that we're going to sing in just a moment. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. That's, that's the sermon in a song verse. My sin, not in part, not most of it, not the majority of it, the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Why? Because Jesus bore it. Not because it's magically gone, but because he dealt with it. Do you believe this today? Do you believe in the gospel of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ? Paul is going to ask a question in two verses. He's going to say this. Now is the favorable time, he says in, 1 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 6, 2. Now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. In other words, there's, there's urgency here. I know I ought to put my hope and trust in Jesus Christ. Well, do it now. Do it today. In a, in a group this size, chances are there are several in here who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. Put your hope in Him now. Don't wait. 
If you don't exactly know what that means, then please come to talk, talk to us as pastors. Find an elder, find a deacon, find someone to pray with you and to help you understand better what Christ offers to you in the gospel. Your sin has been dealt with. That's your biggest problem in life. And Christ solves it through the cross. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this message of the gospel. We thank you that this message is simple. It's not hard to understand. But Lord, our sin often will not allow us to accept it and to receive it as the gift that it's meant. Lord, that you would give us hope, that you would give us faith and trust in who you are and what you've done for us. And Lord, that we would walk with you all the days of our life. We would realize that we are in you, Lord. We are in Christ because of his life and death for us. Would you be with us now as we come to the table? As we have heard your gospel preached, we will now see it and taste it. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.